All right, let's dive in to the text this morning. I'm going to jump right in. If you've got a Bible near you, the Black Bible's in the room, grab one of those, open up to Matthew chapter 12. If you have your own Bible, and I hope you do, would you bring it uh, with you? Would you make that a regular part of how you gather on Sundays? Bring the scriptures with you, pull out your phone, turn your Bible on, whatever it takes to interact with the scriptures. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Matthew 12, 38 through 50. This is God's word to us. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This passage now is connected to what I've just read. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, Jesus' mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother, my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us, your people, through your word, would you activate our imaginations? Would this, not, this teaching not just come to our heads, but it, would it resonate deeply within us, in our hearts? Would it influence our passions, our desires, our allegiance to you? Would it influence all of our life, Father? Please, we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Here's the big idea this morning. True followers of Jesus listen to him and do what he asks of us. True followers of Jesus listen to him and do what he asks of them or of us. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not groundbreaking news to you. Like, I'm not telling you something that you do not already know, that you have not already heard. So it may not be revolutionary, but it is a reminder. And what you and I need is daily reminders that true followers of Jesus, if we count ourselves as such, listen to him and follow him and do what he asks of us. Now, by making this statement that true followers of Jesus listen to him and do what he asks, um, I'm working on an assumption. And so, so here is the assumption. It may not be true for you that you're working on this assumption too, but I hope that it is. The assumption that I'm working on is that Jesus of Nazareth is in a different category altogether than other real human founders of other world religions. He's in an altogether different category. So Muhammad, a human, the founder of Islam, does not have a resurrection story. The founders of Judaism, 
Abraham and Moses, humans, do not have a resurrection story. I'll put an asterisk there because as men of God, we will see them face to face one day. Buddha, a human, does not have a resurrection story. Several things make Jesus radically different than every other human founder of every other world religion. Jesus claimed to be God and man, fully God, fully man. Uh, he lived among us in the first century. He taught radically. He uh, lived radically. He taught authoritatively. And Jesus performed nature-bending signs and had eyewitnesses to these nature-bending signs. Jesus was tortured by the Romans at the insistence of the first century Jewish leaders. So he's God and man. That makes him unique. Second, resurrection from the dead is perhaps the major thing, the major event in world history that authenticates Jesus and separates him from other uh, world religion founders. Three days after Jesus' murder and burial in the heart of the earth, all of his, and into a grave, all of his uh, disciples, all of his apostles actually saw him alive again. They, they saw him with their own eyes, and they didn't just see him once with their own eyes, but they saw him regularly for just under six weeks. Not only that, but a number of other people saw Jesus alive as well. Scriptures tell us in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that Jesus was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. So, there's maybe a hundred of us, probably not in this room. Think about five times the number of people in this room seeing Jesus just as you're seeing me right now. At one time. Not a hallucinogenic event, but an actual real historical event where a multitude of people, 500 of them, see Jesus with their own eyes. So for you and I to hold this conviction that true followers of Jesus listen to him and do what he says isn't an abstraction. It's not an absurdity. Here's what it means. It means that Jesus is alive. We can listen to him because he is alive. We can do what he asks of us, not as the founder of a dead religion or a dead founder of a dead religion, but actually as a living, breathing, present founder of a living religion. And so if Jesus is alive and if this means for us that what he taught and what he asks of us, it's still true for us today. It's still authoritative. It's still in effect. And so the commands and the wisdom that Jesus gave first century, first century disciples are as relevant to you and I as they, they were back then. But also, there's a flip side here that the warnings that Jesus gave to first century people, skeptics, opponents, are as relevant to you and I as they were to them. And so I want to show you where I'm getting big today's big idea. Um, around here, we don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to preach clever sermons. That's not part of like how I approach the text on a Sunday. I want to preach compelling sermons that just like, pop right up out of the, the pages of our Bibles. Because if I can show you, or if whoever is occupying the pulpit, or a teaching office in our church can show you where these ideas are coming up out of the text, it actually makes you and I a better student of our Bible. We're being equipped to see how this is so relevant to us. But if I come preaching clever sermons, and you're just scratching your head afterwards, like, where in the world did he get those ideas? I must never be able to do that. And then what does it do? It 
has a pretty discouraging effect on us. So I want to be intelligent, but I also want to be compelling, and I, I want to be clear. And so here is today's big idea. Today's big idea is that true followers of Jesus listen to him and do what he asks. And so here's what this text is teaching us, what Jesus' disciple Matthew is teaching us. Read the sign of our times, that Jesus is greater That's the first point. The second point is the great power and presence of God is needed to defeat evil. And the third point is true followers of Jesus are the family of God and the family of God does the will of God. So here's where we're going this morning. Read the sign of our times. Jesus is greater. Greater than who? Who did Jesus say he was greater than first in this text? Jonah. He's saying that he's a greater Old Testament prophet than Jonah. And he's saying he's a greater and wiser king than this Old Testament king, Solomon. And so look at verse uh, 38 here. Um, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, they answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So Jesus has, we're picking up kind of mid-sentence, mid-stream here and some of Jesus's interactions with the religious rulers of the day. And and he's, he's entered into this phase of public ministry where he's clashing with these leaders and these rulers and these authoritative ones. And they have decided, Matthew has already told us, that they want to see Jesus. Jesus destroyed. And so they're on the lookout for him. They're spying on him. They're following him. And they're looking for ways to set traps for him. Jesus has recently claimed at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12 that he's actually greater than the temple. What that means is that he's a greater place to meet with God than the temple itself. He's a greater mediator. The presence of God literally dwells in him. He is God. He's also claimed that he's got more authority than all of their priests of the law. He's our great high priest, the scriptures teach. He's claiming to these religious leaders as he's clashing with them that the spirit of God is at work in him. And they're actually saying, no, 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 it's not the spirit of God that works, that's at work in you. It's actually demons who you're performing these miracles by their power. And so these religious rulers, they come to Jesus and they demand that he do more than he's already done. Come on, come on, come on. Show me a sign. Give me something from heaven, something that will validate you. One writer says that their demand for another sign signals the end of their faith. He's like, if I show you, you're not going to believe it because you haven't believed all of this that I've been doing, that I've been saying. Jesus' response to them is actually, you're an evil and cheating generation. The only sign you'll be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so, as students of the scriptures, we've got to ask, what's that sign? What is the sign of the prophet Jonah? I I haven't thought about it in in these terms before, but Jonah is perhaps the greatest preacher in all, a prophet in all of the scriptures. I don't mean he's the greatest prophet, I mean he's like, his prophetic word, his preached word, his proclaimed word has a massive effect. He's actually a pretty, if you read Jonah, it's about four chapters in your Old Testament. It'd take you about 10 minutes. It's pretty, pretty short, 10, 15 minutes to read it thoughtfully and carefully. Uh, he, uh, he, he's actually a pretty messed up guy. Like God calls him, he runs away. God miraculously calls him back to the original task. Jonah comes and fulfills it. 
and then gets mad at God because he's merciful and gracious to these people who Jonah didn't think God should be merciful and gracious to. And so he's like, he's at war with the Lord, with Yahweh in his head and in his heart the whole way. And uh, he, he, here's why Jonah is so powerful. He walks about a day's journey into this great city. It's a foreign city, Nineveh. He walks about a day's journey into the city. That's a long ways. And he begins to preach repentance and they respond. They're a foreign, unbelieving nation, and they respond, and it gets the attention of the king, and the king issues a decree that everybody move into a state of mourning and call on Israel's God, Yahweh, that he might be merciful and gracious to them, and he relents from the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. Jonah, the the book of Jonah tells us there are about 120,000 people in the city. That's some wild preaching. Conversions. We don't know where all of that went, but again, he tried to run away from God early on and he gets on a ship going the other way and these, uh, these people on the ship, there's a great storm and it looks like they're gonna go down and they begin to call and, on their own gods and offer um, sacrifices and they realize that Jonah's actually in the bottom of the ship asleep and they go and they wake him up and this, because the storm hasn't relented and they say, hey, call on your God and then they cast lots and they deter- this lot falls to Jonah and they're like, it's you. And he's like, yes, it is me. I'm running from God and he says, throw me overboard. He's trying to get away from God's call that way. Kill me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do what God has called me to. God appoints, maybe hard for some of us to believe, but there are documented cases of it happening in history. God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah stays alive in the belly of this fish for three days. God speaks, appoints that this fish would, would spit him up onto dry land. He does. He walks about a day's journey into the city. He says, repent, and they do. The sign of Jonah is this preaching and this response of repentance, calling people to turn away from their evil way, their evil path. True repentance for us, this is like a bad word in our culture. It shouldn't be. It should certainly not be a bad word in the scriptures because it's the the first word of Jesus's ministry, repent. Repentance always rejoices in God's mercy. Why? Because it leads to renewal of a right relationship with God himself. It's like the way in to the heart of God, to closeness and intimacy with him, just admitting our humanness, our frailty, our faults, our brokenness, our divisiveness, our disintegration, whatever it is that is at war with who God is and his holiness. Now, Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of this great fish, so too will the Son of Man, that's a term for himself, taken out of Daniel chapter 7, a, f- a favorite term that he used to refer to himself, so too will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. What Jesus was doing was foreshadowing his atoning death. And the effects of Jesus' atoning death for sinners would spread across the face of the earth throughout history and lead to multitudes of people rejoicing in God's mercy as we, they, gained right relationship with God. A theologian who uh, has passed away and is with the Lord, his name is R.C. Sproul, he writes, just as Jonah was thrown into the sea so that the sailors on the ship might be saved, Jesus was thrown into the depth of the earth for our redemption. 
Jesus is not only, though, foreshadowing here his death. He's also foreshadowing his resurrection, not explicitly, but implicitly. Listen to how R.T. France, a, a commentator, says it. Jonah was rescued from the prospect of death. He was near death in the belly of this fish, drowning in the sea. But Jesus was rescued from death itself. He actually died. He actually was buried. And he was brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit on the third day. There is no sign that validates Jesus more powerfully and more compellingly than his resurrection. And because he is resurrected, because he is alive, true followers of Jesus, we listen to him. And we follow him. We do. We respond to him in obedience. We do what he has asked us to do. Jesus, he also foreshadows the resurrection of all men and all women when he says that the men of this city that Jonah went to preach to, Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this, with your generation, you guys, and, and, and condemn it. Why? Why will they rise up at the same time at this resurrection and condemn it? Because if the pagans of a foreign nation respond with repentance at Jonah's preaching, what excuse do the sons and daughters of God's chosen nation have for not responding to the preaching of God's chosen son? He's there. So implication for us, if we see, to use Bible terms from Hebrews, the radiance of the glory of God's son, if we have a sense that Jesus Christ is alive, that Jesus Christ is holy, that Jesus Christ is God, and if we remain unmoved by that, yeah, 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 I believe it, I believe it, but my life and my, my way of being and my way of thinking and my way of feeling remain unmoved, like, is there anything else that can move us? If we assent to it with just our heads, but nothing actually changes, is there anything else that can move us? The Apostle Paul would say that their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. If we remain unmoved at the person and the work and the authority and the miraculous power of Jesus Christ, and we remain unmoved, we are in danger. Jesus switches from a famous Old Testament prophet to a famous Old Testament king. This was King David's son, a guy named Solomon. And during, during Solomon's reign, this pagan queen, um, she was uh, known as the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba. She travels from far away. First Kings chapter 10, I believe, says um, that she traveled from the, quote, ends of the earth to hear the wisdom, to hear this wise, authoritative teaching, this profound teaching of Solomon. Uh, history says that she was Yemeni or Ethiopian, maybe both since they're only 25 miles apart from one another, just separated by a strait in the, sea, the Red Sea. Uh, here's how this foreign queen responds to this God-given wisdom of Solomon. She's traveled a long way off to hear him. And she says to this king after experiencing him for a time, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your word, Solomon, and your wisdom but I didn't believe the reports until I came with my own eyes, until I experienced you for myself. And behold, the half of it wasn't even told to me. Your wisdom and pro prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you to hear your wisdom. 
And so blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, Solomon, because the Lord, it must mean that the Lord loved Israel and because he has loved Israel forever, he has made you a king. Why? That you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gives Solomon this really generous offering. If you, if you look at this, like what she ascribes to King Solomon here can mirror at a less, in a lesser way, kind of, it's like a shadow of the greatness of Jesus who comes and executes righteousness and justice. He gives justice. Justice is actually poured out on him and he gives us his righteousness. He's been set not just as a human king on the throne of Israel, but as the true king over the nations of the world and the people of the world. He, his, his wisdom is profound. His prosperity is profound. He's continually dispensing wisdom. And so Jesus says, you know, like one is greater than Solomon. One here. He says, the queen of the south, she's going to raise from the dead. She's going to rise up at this judgment with your generation, Pharisees. And she also, along with Jonah, the people of Nineveh are going to condemn. Why? Because if the royalty of a foreign nation responds with rejoicing at Solomon's wisdom, what excuse do the sons and the daughters of God's chosen nation have for rejecting the wisdom of God's royal son. Leon Morris says this, Solomon was proverbial for wisdom, but his wisdom wasn't to be compared with what had happened with the coming of Jesus. And yet the people of that generation would not believe. They had merited a greater condemnation. He says, we should notice these points of comparison, that the queen came from a long distance, whereas the Jews didn't even have to travel. She responded, but they didn't. And she was confronted with Solomon, but they're confronted with one who is greater than Solomon. So we need to recognize the sign of the times that Jesus is the great one. He is greater. Also, transitioning here to this next session, section, the great power and presence of God is needed to defeat evil. Verses 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. And then spirit, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation." What he's saying, this is a bit of a parable here. And if we just pluck this out of its context, we get all kinds of confused, me included, yes. When, what Jesus is saying right here in verse 43, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it, it doesn't look like this unclean spirit, a demon, has been cast out of a person. It looks like it potentially just leaves by its own will, at its own volition. It just decides to go. I don't know why it's seeking rest. I don't know why it finds none. But it says it has a mind. These are thinking beings. It says, I'm actually going to return to my house. That's synonymous here for a person and uh, from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the person kind of swept and cleaned up and put in order. The person's disciplined. The person's probably got some good things going on in their life, but they are empty. They are not occupied by the Spirit of God. Rather, they are void 
Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits. Seven, oftentimes in the scriptures, is a number of completion. It represents completion. It could, I don't know if it does or not, it could mean that what Jesus is saying with seven other spirits here means that they're going to come. It's like seven plus one. They're going to come and just totally dominate. Like It's like total demon possession here, complete possession They're going to dominate this person, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And then Jesus connects it to what just came before. So it's also going to be with this evil generation if you don't listen. I quoted R.C. Sproul earlier. Uh, He says in his commentary on Matthew, he's not at all sure he understands this one. Touche. While I respect R.C., and there's zero chance that I am smarter than him, I do think that, uh, that, that we can come to some clarity about what this passage means. And, and I think this is kind of the big idea. This man, this person in this parable, their lack of spiritual resources left them open to a worse outcome than before. Their lack of spiritual resources left them open to a worse outcome than, be, than before. Um, so the idea is that we can clean up our house. We can get our life in order. We can be disciplined. Like if you're a follower of David Goggins on the internet or Jocko or any of those guys, like these guys are modern day Stoics, modern day ascetics. Like they beat themselves, their bodies into submission. We can do all of that. But if we don't have the spirit of God protecting us from the forces of evil, we're left open. You can cover all the bases as much as you want, but if we do not have the Spirit of God protecting us from the forces of evil, we are left vulnerable. These Pharisees, they're top-shelf religious types. In Jesus' day, they're, they're, they're legalists. That might be how we describe them. And I've never thought of this before in these kinds of terms or, or felt or thought of it so strongly, but legalism at its root is demonic. It's demonic. It's something that I've just kind of, I I grew up in a a legalistic culture, legalistic church, and I've just kind of thought of it as one of the ways that we, you know, kind of like stray. But the more that I encounter legalism, the more I see how anti-gospel legalism is. The Apostle Paul would warn the Galatians, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one which you received from him, let him be accursed. Legalism is this word that we don't often hear outside of church settings, but here's what legalism means. It means that it's a dedication to achieving holiness and righteousness. It's a dedication to achieving holiness and righteousness. Legalism is a kind of self-made righteousness. And legalism does not always come across in obvious ways. A guy named Dan Doriani has done some helpful work. He, he kind of classes legalists in four places, of which I fall in one of these, and you probably do too. Class one legalists, follow me here, are auto, this is kind of weird language, auto sauterists. That means auto salvation people. They declare what one must do in order to obtain God's favor and salvation. The rich young ruler was a class one legalist. Hey, Jesus, tell me what I've got to do in order to inherit eternal life. Class two legalists, they declare what good deeds or spiritual disciplines a person has to perform in order to retain God's favor and salvation. So it's by grace that you've been saved and now it's up to you to keep up with it. Class two. How exhausting is that for so many of us? We've lived that. I've lived that. 
Class three legalists love the law so much they create new ones. Laws not found in scripture. And class three legalists require submission to them. So the Pharisees that Jesus is tangling with here, they build fences around the law. They're class three legalists. We believe in the law so much, we're gonna create some new laws to keep us from breaking those laws. Class four legalists avoid these gross errors. Listen to the nuance here. But they so accentuate obedience to the law of God that other ideas shrivel up. They reason, God has redeemed us at the cost of his son's life. Is that true? Yeah. Now he demands our service in return. Is that true? He has given us his spirit and a new nature and stated his will. Is that true? With these resources, we, his spirit and his will and his new nature, with these resources, we obey his law in gratitude for our redemption. This is our duty to God. In an important way, this is all so, so, so true. But class four legalists dwell on the law of God until they forget the love of God. Worshiping, delighting in, communing with, and conforming to his nature are forgotten. Love of neighbor tends to grow cold in these kinds of cultures where we unsay with our culture what we say with our doctrine. Ray Ortland has popularized that phrase and it, 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 it is so helpful. We can have like our doctrinal, our confessional, like you read the Justification of Sinners confessional statement on the screen this morning as Dave read that to us. It's like precise, it's good. And we can believe that with all of our head. But if we forget love of God, here is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We can unsay with the way that we live to one another, we can unsay what we say we believe by the way that we live and act. Jesus warns these Pharisees in love here. Whenever we encounter Jesus warning people in Scripture, it's helpful, so, so helpful to see, to look, to examine, to consider the posture of Jesus. Jesus in his ministry brings invitation. He does not bring condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's true for the believer. But God says in the most famous verse in the New Testament, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would, re would, would receive salvation, would inherit eternal life. And then 17, which is 317, which is often neglected, said that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Even when Jesus rebukes, which he does a lot on the pages of our New Testament, even when he rebukes these Pharisees, and he does so strongly at times, we're like, whoa, like that has a sharp edge to it, Jesus. You're, you're getting a little like too comfortable in your britches here. You seem a little bit rude, you know, to the people around you. Yeah, his rebukes though, if you listen, if you look for what he's trying to do with these, they're never mean-spirited put-downs. Even when he's calling them snakes, which he does, you bunch of snakes. He's not putting them down. It's actually a generous rebuke because he is calling his enemies to wake up. He's calling his enemies into something better. 
He's actually loving his enemies. I said last week, sometimes like hard words are needed to wake up hard hearts. Jesus commands us to love our enemies and we can trust Jesus in that command because of the way that he loves his enemies. Sometimes it's gentleness to the weary. Sometimes it is stiff rebuke to those who are clearly opposing what he's wanting to do in the world. Leon Morris says it this way. Clearly, Jesus was now pointing out the danger in which his conversation partners, the Pharisees, stood. They had been confronted with divine power, and if they tried to live empty lives, lives that did not replace evil by the presence of the Holy Spirit, there was nothing before them but the grimmest of prospects. Woe to us if the Spirit of God is not filling us and animating us and moving us to love God and to love our neighbor at great cost to ourselves. That's where it gets tricky. But what God means to do to you and I and through you and I is pour his love into our hearts so that we can love him with a kind of love that's not natural to us. It's actually a supernatural love. It's his love that he gives us and we offer it back to him. And that also animates us and moves us out to unlovable people in our natural thinking There's a kind of supernatural love that he gives to us so that we can love people who it's not natural for us to love. And this is how the whole world will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another within the church, but also by the way that we love our enemies. Here's the third point, and then we'll be done. True followers of Jesus are the family of God, and the family of God does the will of God. Look at verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, he's still, he's still like mid, he's inside some sort of a home or a dwelling here. While he's still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, this could say brothers and sisters because he had sisters, stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus' mom, Mary, and his brothers and sisters are trying to get his attention. Um, the, gospels, the Gospel of John tells us that his own brothers, Jesus was the firstborn, so he's the older bro. So everybody's looking up to him, but they did not believe that he was God. John's Gospel tells us they did not believe in him. Mark's gospel has a parallel account of what we just read. And uh, in 3, I think 21, he says that his mom and his brothers tried to seize him. That's like seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. They were alarmed. They did not fully understand Jesus's unique place in history, which is okay. They're human. But the lesson that Jesus, this God-man here, teaches us is profound. And if we will have ears to hear, it can radically alter how we live side by side with other people who follow Jesus too, our family. How confused was the poor guy who Jesus' mama sent to give him a message? That's the response? Who are my mom? Who are my... They're right here. I would be be completely confused. And his reply, it like takes us off guard. It seems a bit weird, but we need to know this. Jesus is not disrespecting his mama. That's not what he's doing in this moment. He upheld the law perfectly. One of the great commandments, the 10 commandments says what? Honor your father and mother. 
Jesus absolutely taught honoring our father and mother. There's just a bit of a side note. Uh, Jesus, there's no mention of Jesus' dad, his earthly dad, Joseph, here either. There's actually no mention of Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph, after Jesus was about 12 years old or he had this incident in the temple. There's no mention of Joseph. So it could mean that Jesus lost his dad at a young age. Just a pastoral word. Have you lost your dad? Have you lost your father, your earthly dad? Jesus knows your grief, feels it. He doesn't just know it with his head, but he feels your grief too. The essence of Jesus's question, who are my mom and my brothers and sisters is actually, who is my family? That's what he's driving at here. Who is my family? Who do I belong to? And who belongs to me? Megan Hill writes about, so she's writing about the church family, this new family that we've been born into. Like the members of our biological family, we haven't chosen our church family for ourselves. But they've been chosen for us, and we are therefore inseparably bound to them. Look around the room. You're inseparably bound to one another. Because we belong to Christ, we belong to his family. That's what is true. So Jesus' mom and his brothers come to him with this presumption that they know best. They're trying to seize him because they thought that he was out of his mind here. So the idea is that if Jesus will just follow them, then things will work out but he doesn't go for it. No, those who are my family are those who get on board with my Father's will. Jesus has come to us to do his Father's will. That's why he's come to us, to do his Father's will. And our Father's will for Jesus was to enter into our divided, our disordered, our disintegrated world and to reconcile us back to our Father, to God, into the family of God. Doing the will of God, of our Father, begins and ends with our posture. It begins and ends with our posture. So this is what Jesus wants to do. He wants us to, he wants us to do. He wants you and I to give up on our unbelief. He wants us to quit on our unbelief. And he wants us to throw ourselves again and again and again and again on our Father's mercy. We call this repentance, and it's a good word. Giving up on our unbelief and our insistence on our own way, and rather to throw ourselves again and again on the Father's mercy. Like John the Baptist in uh, chapter 11 that we read about, Jesus wants us to continue doubting our doubts and remembering who he is. And so what he does in chapter 11, we read this a little while ago, and we'll, we'll end here. Jesus, he invites us to come to him, that's his invitation. Come to me. He invites us to come to him with our fear and with our guilt and with our shame that we can't quite scrub off. He, comes, he invites us to come to him with all of our weariness and he invites us to come to him with all of our wandering and he invites us to come and to learn from him and to take on his way of living and as you and I do that, as we come to him and take his yoke upon us, that's the language of Matthew chapter 11, we will find that the burden of following Jesus is far lighter than the burden of following self. 
following our own hearts, following our own desires, following our own passions, our own feelings. One not-so-subtle way that Jesus wants us to take on his way is how we, how we treat our new family relationships. So I'll say it like this, how we one another one another. We practice the one another's in community. It's one of our values around here. True followers of Jesus listen to him and do what he asks. And he's got a lot to say about how we love him, how we love Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how we love one another. The will of God for you and I is to believe in his son, to come crashing into Jesus with all of who we are and all of what we have, The will of God for us is to love him and to trust him with our minds, our hearts, our souls, and our strength, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so we have a question to ask, how do we love our neighbors? There are about 59 unique one another's or each other's in our New Testaments. And if you look in the seat backs in front of you, there's a folded piece of paper there for you that just lists those one another's. So as we aim to respond, as we, maybe there's reformation that God wants to introduce to us, just grab that piece of paper and just read through it and think through it and ask the Spirit of God, how do you, how do you want me to listen to you? How do you want me to respond to you? Tuck it in your Bible, take it at home, like put it where you'll see it. Use it, utilize it. Take a picture of it with your phone for quick reference, whatever it is. But his will for us is that we would love his son. We'd love him with heart more mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Here's where we close Matthew's gospel for a little while. Father, help us to love you well and to love our siblings and the family that you've called us into. It is so easy to give up on one another and so hard to stay with one another. Father, for those of us like myself with long patterns of relational cutoff, Would you help us to stay the course with the brothers and sisters that you've given us and to do so as we follow you and look to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.